and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Today, we're going to be recording a podcast that most Europeans hoped would never happen. We're going to be talking about President Trump. It's not a possibility. It's not a nightmare. It is, in fact, what the American people have decided to do by a small minority, even though uh, he has a plurality of the votes in the Electoral College. And to help us make sense of what President Trump means for Europe, we're joined once again by our research director, Jeremy Shapiro, who's a former State Department official and uh, is our token American on the podcast. And then from Berlin by Josef Yamin, who is one of the directors of our office there, and a senior policy fellow at ECFR as well. And from Istanbul by Asla Aydin Tashbash, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who focuses uh, mainly on Turkey. So, Jeremy, we talked a lot about President Trump in the past. What does it mean for Europe? Uh, thanks, Mark, and thanks for the um, offer of asylum. Um, uh, I think that Trump uh, has some really rather profound implications for Europe. You know, you always have to be careful with sort of trying to outline Trump's foreign policy because during the campaign, he really abhorred specifics and he um, often contradicted himself. So it's a little bit difficult to trace what his thought is. It's, of course, a cottage industry right now. But my guess is on a lot of specific issues, even he doesn't know. Um but I think that there are there are a few things that you can say about his about the way he approaches foreign policy issues, which really do date back twenty or thirty years, and which definitely have some uh, pretty serious implications for Europe. The the first is the way that he views allies and particularly uh, alliance allies. The this the notion uh, that you know the NATO alliance is based on a, a notion of solidarity and of shared interests and values, which transcend the sort of uh, payments of the moment. Uh, Trump definitely views alliances on a much more transactional basis, which means he's not really interested in the sort of long-term sense of shared values, shared mission, and solidarity in defense of each other. He's, he wants to make sure that he's getting paid for whatever uh, protection he provides on a, a daily or yearly basis. And so that is a very different approach to uh, the NATO alliance particularly, but to also other American alliances that uh, than any previous American president since World War II has taken. Uh, and I think it has rather profound implications for how the NATO alliance will function. Um, the second thing that I think really uh, that he's really concentrated on throughout the campaign and in his entire political life is his great frustration with the global trading order. He thinks that essentially the U.S. submits to trade pacts with, uh, with its partners in order to gain geopolitical concessions and that American workers and American jobs pay the price. And he thinks this is particularly true of multilateral trade deals, which he believes are always bad deals for the American economy. And so he wants to get rid of the entire notion of the multilateral trade deal, uh, which means he would be uh, uninterested in TPP or TTIP or um, even the WTO. Uh, I think it does, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, it doesn't mean that he's completely against trade, of course, and it does mean he would be interested, I think, in bilateral trade deals. Uh, and he's, you know, even offered to bring the UK to the front of the queue 
But I think what he's looking for is an ability to leverage the American economy in a very mercantilistic way to secure very, very favorable trade deals. So while they might be achievable, I don't think there'd be things that Europe would be interested in. The third and last thing I think which is really fundamental to the way he approaches foreign policy is his uh, sort of fondness for authoritarian strongmen, or I should say strongmen who tend to be authoritarian. Um, and he believes that uh, as a sort of strong man, he can negotiate on the basis of toughness with that with these people and come out with good hard deals. And of course, the the essential of this is is Vladimir Putin. But during the campaign, he also found kind words for Saddam Hussein, for Kim Jong Un, for uh, Muammar Gaddafi, and even for uh, Bashar Assad. So, um, so I think he believes that he can negotiate with people like that and come up with better deals actually than America is used to getting from its allies. So that's all pretty uh, scary stuff for the Europeans. Josef, you're sitting in Berlin at the moment and Angela Merkel was one of the, the first leaders to come out and uh, discuss the prospects of working with, with President Trump. How are things looking in, in Germany? You know, in uh, Berlin, people now have to kind of make their arrangement with reality. So Merkel uh, has reacted in the way that you would want a statesman to react, but she has made sure uh, that everybody knows that she thinks that cooperation uh, is not just uh, a transaction between powers. Now, I very much agree with Jeremy's description there, but she insisted that cooperation has a set of values, principles, and processes that it relies on, and that these are important for Germany. So that's very much a, a statement uh, to, uh, to counter uh, Trump's very selective approach and very strongman-focused approach. Uh, Steinmeier has added to that in his own statement also the notion of, 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 of uh, Germany uh, seeing itself in the position of defining what is the glue of uh, what used to be the West, you know, what, what binds our uh, countries together, what is the reason why uh, we are cooperating with each other in a structured way. So he's added the element also of fairness or solidarity, justice into that. So you see that, that actors have begun to think of how should they best make clear that they have a different view of how uh, states should cooperate while they are, of course, ready to work with whatever government the American people will elect. Slightly more coded um, warnings to, to come Trump yeah. and from the UK or other countries that are desperate to congratulate them. But do you think that they, they, there's any desire to actually stand up to Trump in any of these areas? I mean, how does that actually translate into policies? Well, I, I believe there is recognition that there might be a point uh, coming sometime during uh, the next year, which is very sensitive because of Germany facing general elections next September where the government and or the governing parties have to make clear what they want to see different, you know, and uh, how they view, for example, NATO and the EU as essential pillars of German foreign policy, both of which Trump has been rather dismissive about. Now, how they believe that the trade environment we live in as, as uh, market economies uh, should be organized through uh, agreements, through trade regimes, uh, through 
uh, the various uh, uh, forms getting, of getting ready to become the anti-Trump Western government in well. In, you see, Trump, Trump will ditch TTIP and TPP. Uh, Trump may even put question marks on NAFTA. Uh, none of that is welcome news to the German chancellor. Yeah. Well, because she actually believes that the, the, the trading environment is better if we create a web of, of overlapping um, free trade agreements and multilateral trade arrangements. So... Asli, you've been watching this from Turkey, where I think people have got a very different attitude towards Trump. It's not one of the areas uh, of the world where Trump has been very critical of the leaders, unlike Germany, where Trump was quite rude about Angela Merkel. I think he's been more positive about President Erdogan. It's very interesting, Mark, because initially there was uh, quite a bit of reaction, particularly in governing circles, about Trump's anti-Muslim statements and AKP media, pro-AKP media was full of sort of anti-Muslim commentary from Trump and cr criticism about that. But then things have changed to in the middle of the summer with the coup effort, coup attempt in July. And basically, uh, there was a sense that it... The Gulen Group, which the government holds responsible for the July coup, there had been a, a couple of fundraisers by various Gulen organizations in the States for Hillary Clinton. And all of a sudden, Hillary Clinton started being described as the sort of the more Gulenist candidate and these <laughs> fundraisers, which were really small in terms of the money changing hand in U.S. election, local stuff. But nonetheless, it got to play a big role in Turkish uh, media. And uh, uh, that has really swayed things in the opinion of the government here. They wanted a Trump victory. They weren't thinking it would happen, but they wanted a Trump victory for two reasons, for three reasons. One, this idea, uh, quite mistaken in my belief, but this idea that uh, Hillary Clinton was, a, you know, sort of a crypto Gulenist candidate. And secondly, more importantly, I think Trump made it very clear in July, uh, late July and in August, in an interview he gave to the New York Times, that he would not make the human rights a record of Turkey or the crackdown on uh, dissidents an issue. He said to the New York Times in, uh, on July 21st, I do not think we are in a position to lecture specifically about uh, sort of uh, criticism of uh, the crackdown in Turkey, post-school crackdown in Turkey. And I think people heard that loud and clear in Ankara. And thirdly, there's this idea now also in the think tank community, uh, particularly close to the government, that Trump wanting to be hands off in Syria, not wanting to get em embroiled in sort of conflicts in the Middle East means this uh, essentially that a new space would open up for Turkish leadership. We had uh, one of the advisors of Erdogan uh, openly tweeting today that this means we become the leaders in the Middle East. I think Obviously, this is, a, this is a bit of a quick judgment, and there's all sorts of considerations, including the fact that Turkey will now have to deal with Russia and may not really have a U.S. arbitration in the Middle East in their dealings with Russia. We've never, ever, for the past, uh, since 1950s, we've never really dealt with Russia on a one-on-one -on -one basis. We always had the backing of NATO or the knowledge that we were a NATO country. And all of a sudden, not that NATO is dissolving overnight, but the idea that we and the Russians could together carve out uh, you know, sort of Syria and the rest of it is too, 
too naive to many observers who sort of know the history of Turkey and Russian relations, which is not just the past couple of years of booming economic ties, but centuries of warfare and whatnot. So I think there's a lot of confusion right now. Uh, and if you are looking for a positive agenda, though, in terms of Trump presidency, come to Turkey, because here people are entertaining you know, visions of sort of establishing Turkey's grandeur in the Middle East because the U.S. will be hands off. So, Jeremy, we, the Middle East is one of the theatres where America's likely to, to change its role. And, and we will see in due course whether these Turkish visions of grandeur come to anything. Uh, but, but there's also a big question about what happens to Asian security. Trump has talked about how Japan and Korea should uh, get themselves nuclear weapons and uh, has questioned the uh, wisdom of spending so much money on security guarantees to, to allies uh, in, the, in, in the Far East. But for Europeans, I suppose the most worrying uh, theatre is our own neighbourhood. You talked before about how well uh, Trump gets on with Putin and his admiration for him. He talked about possibly even recognising Crimea, getting rid of American sanctions against Russia. That's probably the, the number one uh, issue on the agenda of some European countries. How can Europeans see that particular question evolving because one of the nightmares would be to start to get stuck in a position where Europe has to play the bad cop towards Russia keeping sanctions in place uh, trying to to deal with the Normandy process and negotiate with Putin uh, while uh, Trump is is cozying up to him and removing the sanctions and doing some kind of grand bargain which undercuts the the EU position uh, well I think that First of all, the um, the the Europeans should should take Trump at its at his word when it comes to his relations with Russia. I don't think there's any reason to think that he's um, that he's going to simply abandon that stance under the pressure of advisors or under the pressure of the Congress or anything like that. Um, I think you know he may end up uh, um, abandoning it over time under the pressure of Vladimir Putin, who can be quite. Uh, perfidious, and he may eventually regret that stance. But I think for, for the for a while at least, we should assume he's going to attempt to implement that stuff. I think if the Europeans want to uh, want to prevent that or at least mitigate it, I think they they can't take the approach. They shouldn't take the approach that they can just sort of send over a high level delegation and and convince Trump that um, uh, that he should see it their way. Uh, I think that the if you know it as always, it's hard to know what what's really important to Trump and how he does business. But you know he did write this book some time ago, The Art of the Deal, or well he didn't precisely write it; somebody else wrote it. But he did put his name on it, and he did um, and he does talk about it a lot. And one of the things he says in there is that the person who opens the negotiation uh, demonstrates weakness. That the first the first person to show up and and offer a deal is the person who wants the deal the most, uh, and so uh, the 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 contrary behavior is to sort of is to from a deal making perspective is to sort of take hostages is to create leverage by doing things that he doesn't want so that you can then relinquish them in the subsequent negotiation. So I think in Europe's case that means thinking about. Uh, China, which is going to have a lot of problems with Trump on the trade and economic front, uh, 
and thinking about ways in which you can demonstrate to Trump that you have hedging options uh, with China and that you have other places to go and that you and you can do things with China that will frustrate his plans. Uh, that may be hard if he doesn't actually care about anything with China either, but I think it's uh, it's really the only way to approach the problem. What do you think Europeans should do specifically on the, the Russian question, um, Josef? Uh, Germany is a country that you know has had long debates about whether sanctions are the best approach anyway. Presumably, it would be very difficult to justify having tough European sanctions on Russia if the US is removing its sanctions and is recognizing Crimea. That would be that would be undercutting uh, Merkel's position uh, entirely, you know, and she would be lost. So uh, I think the German interest is very strongly uh, to um, make sure that America uh, stays on track. But when she senses and knows that America won't stay on track, to actually uh, uh, cut her losses and and see where where Europe's best uh, interest is in. Now the the problem with Trump is. You could believe that he uh, is ready to make some sort of deal with Putin over the heads of the Europeans, which would be annoying. But you could also believe that at some point, some of the generals that, that he is so favorable of will tell him, let's, let's give a number of our modern weapons to the Ukrainians and let them play with them a little bit. And we'll see what happens. And we'll see American... American weapons will scare the Russians. No, I, I would not exclude that, that he could go for something uh, as part of what Jeremy calls the hostage strategy of simply, of simply ta uh, showing the Russians that America can create some trouble on Russia's periphery so the Russians better behave. Now, okay. In both cases would be extremely complicated and, and annoying and, and running against the interests uh, of Europe and Germany in particular. So another question, I suppose, is what to do about the multilateral institutions and the alliances. I mean, Asla, do you not think that Turkey will be worried about the uh, NATO coming under pressure and uh, other institutions? I mean, Turkey's a big trading country as well. If he starts messing around with the world trading system, is that not something which could threaten Turkey's interests? Sure, in terms of NATO, yes. But I think uh, the more uh, existential issue right now is what happens with the European Union and the existing framework of negotiations. And I think definitely Trump's uh, win in the state will also have an indirect impact in that. This is already a frail process, wasn't going anywhere. People had almost given up with occasional, and the idea on both sides was, it's not working, but let's keep it as it is. But things are happening, moving on too fast for that to even be a sort of a strategy. Uh, Turkey has reintroduced, is thinking of reintroducing the death penalty. There's a push for the presidential system, and there's a sense that sort of the domestic uh, downturn in, in Turkey's evolutionists has taken on an accelerated speed, speed, and these things are not going well, going down well in Europe and in particular European Parliament. So there's for the first time talk of freeze of accession negotiations, some countries coming out and calling for an end to it. Not that these things will happen because it's actually very difficult to have unanimous vote and end the accession process, but this and Questions about the future of NATO 
and in general sort of the unknown about the future of U.S.-Russian relations is having a significant impact on Turkey's uh, not just morale, but uh, the economy. The dollar is, is sort of the Turkish current, Turkish lira is losing value much faster than anybody had predicted. And I think there is a sense that the economic slowdown is getting to a point where people feel it on the street. So maybe um, the final thing which we should all think about, and it'd be great to hear from all three of you about this, is, you know, if we're thinking about how Europe can cope with these big changes, what do you think the chances are of Europeans actually being able to show a united front to Trump? Jeremy, why don't you go first? Thanks. Um, I, I guess I can't be too hopeful about that um, because Trump, as has often been noted, Trump is a um, uh, is a representative of a sort of general trend of anti-globalization, renationalization that's that's affecting Europe as much as or more than it's affecting the United States. And of course, Trump's election is going to further encourage that, and it has already encouraged people like Viktor Orban and Marine Le Pen and and uh, any number of other uh, similar. Uh, uh, type politicians across Europe, and I think it's going to, frankly, uh, empower them, and at the very least, um, make mainstream politicians even more afraid of them and even more unwilling to adopt the kind of uh, outward-looking cooperative policies that would be uh, necessary to respond in the way that we're talking about. Josef, do you want to to tell me what you think, and also yeah. maybe think also about to what extent. Europeans are going to be willing to also to to make up for the hole where the U.S. Uh, security guarantees used to be and actually do some uh, stuff themselves to advance European security. Yeah, that's that's a tough question. Let me take the others uh, first. I, I believe that uh, uh, Europeans will do what they mostly do. They will see will really be that bad uh, as it can be or as it looks like it could be because most of the time it doesn't but if uh, uh, most of the expectations come true i expect the europeans to try to to move closer together to strengthen their cohesion where <clears throat> the difficulty that jeremy was describing will set in that uh, basically europe is divided because there's quite a strong potential in europe to follow um, the Brexit Trump drift. Uh, for example, now it is entirely possible that the French will elect Le Pen. You know, if the Americans can elect Trump, why can't the French elect uh, Le Pen uh, to the presidency? So from, from a Berlin perspective, um, what, what other countries, what other governments could Germany rely on? There's basically, there's Germany and then there's there's a handful of uh, smaller rich countries that would probably share many of the preferences and many of the concerns, but that is not the EU at large. So at this point, uh, probably there is no one EU that could be moving closer together. And that, I think, Mark, gets to the other question of how could the Europeans kind of fill the hole that a U.S. turning away from NATO is <clears throat> is creating? I think it's, it's almost impossible because the the United States has been the principal owner of NATO you know, in spite of all the rhetoric when the owner turns away 
that that is really uh, a blow to uh, the cohesion of the alliance. Now, the Europeans could say uh, Trump has has this conditional argument about defense spending. Now, let's all spend 2% of GDP. Uh, while they know that even if they did, uh, this would not generate the kind of capacity um, that the Americans uh, would expect and uh, that Europe should be developing. Also, they, the Europeans face the tough decision for those who want to move that once they start to become more serious about organizing their own defense, they would also have to decide on how much more integration would they be ready to organize in order uh, to get rid of the many operetta armies of the many small countries in Europe. And Asla, looking at Europe from the outside, what does, uh, sorry, obviously not you're inside Europe when you're, when you're talking to me in Istanbul, but from outside of the European Union, um, uh, how does it look? Looking at things from the European side of the Bosphorus, where I'm sitting right now, it seems like the priority will have to be keeping the 27 together in a year of elections which might produce European versions of Trump. So global ambitions and big thinking and in terms of defense and strategy and regional and neighborhood ambitions will all have to uh, be, will all have to be saved for another uh, spring, European spring, so to speak. And we're, because right now it seems to me that European project is seriously running into trouble and keeping the 27 together after Brexit and after Trump will have to be the priority. And in that picture, there clearly is not much room for Turkey. Um, I said that was the last question, but maybe, Jeremy, give you a very final, final word. How much do we know about who, apart from Trump, Europeans are going to be facing? Do you know about, has Trump shared his thoughts about his cabinet in waiting with you? Uh, no, that didn't come up in our last conversation. Uh, but I think, um, you know, there there have been various speculations about uh, his cabinet. I think uh, there's a few things to say. First, he's going to place a premium on um, business people. Uh, he's going to place a premium on bringing people out of the business world, which is the place where he believes all knowledge comes from. Um, secondly, and I suppose in one of the many, many ironies of this um, uh, um, election, he's likely to appoint a former Goldman Sachs executive as uh, Treasury Secretary, um, I guess thus appealing to his white working class base. Um, and, and finally, I think he's been having, uh, I understand he's been having a lot of trouble uh, finding any women who will serve uh, in his cabinet. And so there's a bit of a scramble on uh, since, his, since his campaign team isn't completely devoid of political correctness um, to uh, find some women who will, who will serve in his cabinet. Uh, Clinton had promised to have half of her cabinet be women. So I think he, he probably won't come anywhere near that. But I, in terms of the foreign policy people. There's uh, some speculation in Politico about some sa very savory figures, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Bob Corker, Newt Gingrich, um, John Sessions, and even... Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff Sessions. John Sessions is a, a British comedian. Uh, probably still be a better defense secretary. Um, but yeah, the, the, the all-time favorite for Europeans is the idea that, that John Bolton might become the next Secretary of State, which uh, I'm sure... 
lots of people will be very excited about. Well, I'm also semi-reliably informed that Henry Kissinger, who has had the job before, if you recall, um, thinks he has an inside track on that job and would like to do it again. Well, there we go. Um, wow. He's a, he's a spry 91 years old and can often stay awake for an entire meeting, so he could be perfect. And speaks German. And speaks German, yeah. Well, there we go. would be of much help with Trump. So there we go. We'll come back and discuss Trump's first cabinet once it's appointed. But in the meantime, um, we have one more thing to do with this podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, I'm reading a book about, uh, called In Europe, which is about uh, it's uh, a book that the Dutch Foreign Ministry gave me um, uh, when I was there uh, g- giving a lecture on Donald Trump. And it's about uh, a, a, a Dutch journalist's sort of explorations of Europe and how he's, he's taking in the continent, which is both uh, more integrated than it ever has been, and yet at the same time, Renationalizing. What about you, Josef? Well, my desk has just arrived a new book. It's in German by a young guy, Carlo Masala, teaching at the University of the Armed Forces of the uh, German um, Armed Forces in Munich. And it's about global disorder. Uh, and he has this kind of out of date title that the, uh, about the subtitle reads The Global Crisis and the Failure of the West. Now, I say as of this morning, uh, this is outdated because, you know, the West uh, in itself is is a thing of the past. So um, uh, I'm, I'd be interested to, to read through it because I have to debate the author uh, at the end of this month in a public debate here in Berlin. Um, but it shows actually that, that our conceptual reasoning of where we are uh, falls short with the pace uh, of, of political developments, as Asli has pointed out. What about you, Asla, on your bookshelf? Well, I had read a large chunk of this wonderful and wonderfully entertaining book early in the summer, Sapiens, by Yuval Noah Harari. I picked it up, and then I got interrupted with coup and everything else in Turkey. I picked it up last night, was reading through parts of it before I tuned into U.S. elections. And just a little take on the book, um, There's a short passage about empires reminding us that people have lived under empires and under what we would today call anti-democratic regimes for not just a thousand or three thousand years, but for much of the past uh, uh, 10,000 years. So it's sort of interesting when you think about day-to-day politics and the terminology we use as opposed to our genetic DNA makeup. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, recommend some ECFR publications, which I think are pretty essential to read now. One is by Jeremy called the everyday in the existential, how Clinton and Trump challenge transatlantic relations. You can skip over the, the, Trint- the Clinton parts, <laughs> interesting exercise in uh, the world that might have been, but the existential challenge that he, uh, describes, I think is, is something which, everybody's going to have to get to grips with in the weeks ahead. And there's another fascinating publication, which Jeremy co-wrote with two other ECFR colleagues, Susie Dennison and Dina Pardice, called Fear and Loathing on the Road to the US Elections, which I think is the first and only attempt to look at how every single member state of the European Union looks at the transatlantic relationship 
And I think that will not just be essential reading for Europeans, but for Donald Trump and John Bolton or whoever it is that he appoints as Secretary of State in the future. So that brings this discussion to an end. I'm sure we're going to be coming back to this topic very regularly. But if you have enjoyed it and you like our podcast, please uh, give us a ranking on iTunes or on SoundCloud or MixCloud or whatever platform it is that you're using to listen to this podcast. Please post about it on your Facebook page or on ECFR's uh, Facebook page, which is uh, www.facebook.com slash ECFR Think Tank. Or you can leave us a comment on our page, which is also going to have links to all the publications that we've mentioned. That's www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro, Josef Yanning, Asla Aiden Tashbash, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.